0: Uh, so we are expecting uh, more than 100 uh, plus 150 are recorded must be registered so it's going to be a nice uh, set of people coming up so uh, but we will start in time so just let's take two minutes okay so at this point the you know all the attendees can hear us so. <laughs> <clears throat> You should do some music or something, I don't know, (laughs) there is not, uh, Uh, maybe that should be the the host to do this, Uh, but anyway, (laughs) Uh, or at least provide some finger food or something, whatever.
1: Hello, Agnès.
2: Have some rousing classical music to set the stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's (laughs) right.
0: So we have uh, Agnes with us. Okay, Agnes, good to see you. Hello. Hello. good to see you, good to see you, good to see you. (laughs) Okay, so we have uh, almost all the panel here. And uh, so. (coughs) Okay. Um, okay, so I think, uh, uh, yeah, we have already uh, more than 50 participants, so we can start. So, good morning to Chicago, uh, good afternoon to Europe, Africa, and good evening to me and the rest of Asian colleagues. And welcome to next, uh, company at the sixth component Pro talk on COVID and productivity, hosted by the uh, Banque de France. Unfortunately, it's virtual, uh, so no croissant, no champagne tonight. But uh, you know, again, uh, compensation for that is, is a fantastic panel. I mean, you have in front of you, say, Chad Severson, Steve Davis from University of Chicago, Carolina Villegas from Madrid, Agnes Benasqueure. Uh, from sanspo uh, uh, in paris so uh it's going to be a great panel so the idea is that i'm going to have an introduction to the panel uh, the rules are eight minutes each or so for the panelists and then the q a um so let me start uh, on on the presentation uh, which uh, is uh, kind uh, comes from uh, uh, the uh, the original thing that we did with Chad in April last year, in which we were basically starting to figure out give structure to to the issue of COVID versus productivity. So what we what we are going to do, I'm going to structure and remind you what we were thinking, the data that we had, and the consideration we made. With some arrows going up and down with respect to the impacts on productivity. And then basically, you know, uh, open the floor to see what, 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 what that we learned after that, every uh, in uh, 2010. So uh, starting with the labor, uh, what we knew is that already that was physical labor would not change much because the older were the mostly affected, so no impacts. But what we knew was that the human capital accumulation would have net uncertain effects. On the one hand, certainly there would have been schooling disruptions for incumbent, but uh, on, on the other hand, the schooling tend also to be counter-cyclical. So we could have also a mild positive impact on, on the labor. Uh, job detachment will induce losing skills, but uh, uh, who stayed employed may upgrade uh, IT skills. So a bunch of arrows going up and down. Let me go to the total factor of productivity. What were uh, the presumed impact on, on the various elements that, that actually, by the way, are going to be the structure of our panel within firm productivity, uh, across firm, within sectors, so the reallocation and across sectors. On within firm productivity, uh, what we have in mind was immediately the issue of intangible inputs, so buyer supply trust, lender borrower relationship, organizational effectiveness, all things that implies Irreversibilities, they are costly to rebuild and better to be preserved. So uh, if we lost that, uh, we are going to have a negative impact on uh, on productivity. But then the issue was on knowledge capital. Will the virus uh, trigger innovation? And uh, in particular, the spread of teleworking will be so strong to actually compensate uh, for that? Well, we had a lot of debate on that, but certainly was positive. For sure, however, the macro burden related to the crisis, so the enormous fiscal and monetary action uh, resulting possibly in higher taxes and inflation would have weighed weighed negatively on capital and labor remuneration and accumulation. As far as the cross country barriers, what we had in mind at that time was certainly some uh, very, very uh, scary sort of developments going up, going up. And this was because, of course, we were in the midst of the higher transactional costs, international transactional costs related to the trade war that was ongoing. And the fear that this would have been also uh, added up by GBC repatriation of activities and also problems in labor skill matching. Compromised by the fact that the labor mobility uh, was actually, uh, in a sense, reduced. But how about the resource reallocation between firms? Well, the idea was uh, to figure out. Uh, still, we didn't have the data. Is this crisis uh, uh, cleansing? We know that firm size and productivity are positively correlated. We know that and we knew already that the small firms were the one exiting the most. Therefore, was uh, a clear boost up in productivity via the compositional effect. However, there were major caveats that we can we, we could see already. So, uh, be, because with the shock select on productivity, or instead of other features negative of the of the firms, such as market power or rent seeking ability, and in particular, will the shock solve the structural issues? Something. You know the prevalence of small firms in Italy and Spain—something that actually Carolina will tell us later. Well, we don't, we didn't know this, right? So big question mark. Then there was the issue of zombie firms. It was, of, of course, on top of our mind because government intervention during the global financial crisis had allowed survival of firms, but also created the zombies. And then the dilemma. So, should we limit the business closures to sustain demand and shrink irreversibilities that so we talked talk about before, or, or instead uh, try to favor the business formation going on, which was already a problem? We know that business formation was very uh, depressed, and then finally the financial constraint. We created the efficiency channels towards the progress. So this was. Uh, Something that uh, we were also there I would say is not really enough it's a more a question mark because government and central bank programs appears to target actually small and established firms rather than high productive ones. so in a sense it's a bit it's a more negative than that. So finally on the reallocation across sectors so what we could see already was some sector collapsing, air traffic hotel and so on, other sectors are growing uh, with uh, obviously a very you know question mark uh, overall effect, right? So the overall effect that we were seeing at that time with, with Chad was, uh, you know, for sure in the in the short term, negative, right? As far as the medium and long term, we could see in a way some only mildly positive, uh, only mildly positive impacts going going about. So the question for the panelists and the discussion of today are the following. First of all, what we have learned from, you know, out of the experience of COVID and productivity, in particularly what's the difference of knowledge that we have from April, so 10 months ago up to now. And in particular, can you underline what has surprised us in positive and in negative? The second issue, what are the data and info we need to consolidate our assessment of the future? And finally, are we becoming, all in all, more optimistic than we were just ten months ago? Maybe this is the case. Hopefully, it's the case. But you know, let's discuss if this, uh, you know, is right to be so. So, with no further ado, uh, I give the floor now to Chad, that will correct as well integrate with exciting research has been doing in the last few months. This and then uh, you have eight minutes, Chad. You have the floor, followed by the others. Go ahead, Chad. You're
3: Okay, thank you, Filippo. You set the stage very nicely. Let me uh, share my screen. All right, so um, I'm just gonna cover a couple of things that Filippo mentioned, some early data looks at, at some of the things he, he raised. And in particular, um, I'm gonna focus on this issue in, under points two and three that he mentioned about um, the reallocation across firms and across industries. I'll, I'll kind of crunch them both together depending on the situation. Um, and in particular, look at the relationship between churn and productivity. So there's plenty of evidence established and, and we, I know most in the audience are well aware of this that it tends to be that the churning process, which is generally very intense in the economy Um, on net raises productivity. It is moving on average activity from less productive to more productive firms, either across uh, incumbent firms or through entry and exit. And I think the question that Filippo and I were wrestling with in the original piece was how is that process going to be affected by COVID? Um, Was it still going to be true? What would happen to churn? Was it going to Were we still gonna have a lot of churn or were we just gonna have a lot of exit? Um, And would that exit process, for example, select on productivity or select on other things like rent-seeking ability, political connections, uh, market power, et cetera. And so what would happen to this uh, process that usually in normal times raises productivity? So I've got some early data on that, from the U.S. and the U.K., and then I'll talk about what what we know about other places. Although I, my, the other panelists are going to be much more informed about that than I. So first, just in terms of has has churn slowed? I think you would say definitely not. So what this shows uh, in the U.S. Uh, are total job hires and total s- job separation. So this is worker flows. is the JOLTS data or the uh, the job flows. The JOLTS data. So this is gross job creation, gross job destruction, going all the way back to 2005. And you can see obviously there's a massive spike uh, in separations at the beginning of the pandemic and then it turns around. The only point I want you to take away here is that the the overall level is still of the similar order of magnitude as it was before. And I I plotted this thing back so far because I wanted you to see what happened during the great recession, which was not very much you didn't see nearly the sort of turmoil in gross flows that you do now, but the level of gross flows is still up with what it's always been. So I would say churning is still happening in both directions. Obviously there, at the beginning, there was a lot of, of uh, separations and then there was a little swing back to hires. Uh, but again, uh, jobs are moving in, in both directions. This is occurring across industries and within industries. What this plot shows is total retail sales uh, on the left axis and the share of those sales that are e-commerce on the right axis. So total retail sales, the blue series, e-commerce share is the red series. And again, going back quite a ways, if you look at the right hand of the graph, you see that there was this big spike in e-commerce's share. Now, part of that is because total retail sales went down and e-commerce shell, e-commerce's share uh, just went up mechanically. But actually, as I'll show you in a second, e-commerce sales actually went up. So what we saw was a big shift in retail out of one part of the industry, the physical industry, and into uh, the non-physical part of the industry. And this came with job flows and stuff. These are sales. But the point is that the, even within industries, we saw a lot of churn and it happened very fast. And again, I plotted this back to the late 2000s. So you can see that this isn't just, um, or that, that this is actually somewhat different than what we saw during the great recession. There was no similar spike up in, in e-commerce sales. So if you look at the level of sales, which shows, was, which is shown in this plot, the blue series are all non uh, non-e-commerce retail sales, left axis red uh, line on the right axis is e-commerce sales, What you see is between the fourth quarter of 2019, the second quarter of 2020, just in those six months, total non-e-commerce uh, retail sales fell $124 billion. But e-commerce retail uh, increased $55 billion. So we actually had direct replacement of quite a bit of sales that used to happen offline Started happening online, and this is a, a over a third, uh, almost half, and this happened again just over the matter of months. So this again just shows within industries how much reallocation happened uh, within within um, within sectors. So churn sti- still seems to be going on. Uh, the question is, is this churn? productivity enhancing still, or has something happened because of the pandemic? Maybe the churn is so large, so arbitrary that it's not selecting on productivity anymore. This is hard to get data on, uh, although uh, Nick Bloom and company have uh, this panel in the UK, the decision maker panel uh, data, about 48,000 businesses with over 10 employees, and they have some reasonably high frequency data on this issue, and it's also partially retrospective, partially prospective. So what I'm gonna show you on the next slide has both what has happened and what uh, the businesses expect to happen in the coming coming months. So what these plots show is for labor productivity on the left, TFP on the right. It decomposes uh, total productivity growth uh, within industries in their data into between and within firm shares. Um, what you see the, the between firm components blue the within firm component is orange, the net, which is the sum of the two, is the black line with the, the diamonds. And what you see is in both cases, labor or total factor productivity, that um, regardless of the net change in productivity, and it was negative for TFP, positive for labor productivity, the between firm component was positive. Okay, so what that means is, again, resources are being moved from lower productivity firms to higher productivity firms. This happened uh, through the crisis, so second and third and fourth quarters of 2020, and prospectively, based on companies' responses to how much they expect to grow, both in sales and and inputs, uh, looks to continue to happen through the first half of 2021. So at least in this data, it seems that the between firm component is positive. That is churn is still working in a direction uh, that's increasing average productivity. Here's a different way to look at the data. This is the change in total hours worked at a, at a business compared to its labor productivity level, a bin scatter plot, uh, shown retrospectively 2020 and then prospectively 2021 in the in the red series. And what you see is in both cases, Uh, Total hours went and are going expected to go down for everybody. That's why everything's negative here on the the left axis. But you still see a positive relationship between labor productivity and hours changes. So the most productive businesses saw the least change, uh, the least decline in hours. So again, that is consistent with this productivity enhancing churn process still working in the data. And then uh, a related issue is the sort of extensive firm margin of this reallocation process, <clears throat> excuse me, will uh, new businesses come in and replace uh, the businesses that went out of business because uh, they couldn't uh, continue as a, as a going concern anymore. And you might've worried going in and we talked about this in the, in the piece and Filippo mentioned in his presentation that you know job entry rates or not, sorry, firm entry rates have been on a secular decline for several decades in many countries. And so you might really worry that there'd be a response of firm entry to the the bankruptcies that are happening as part of the pandemic. There is some early work uh, on this and early data on this because um, the Census Bureau has actually put together um, job for, uh, sorry, firm formation statistics. So when companies are uh, applying for a tax identification number uh, as a new business. Um, They're counting this and in almost real time, we're getting that data. So we see week to week, how many businesses are being formed in the US. And this is what the series looks like for 2020. That's the red line there. And in comparison, the 2015 to 2019 average, and this is week by week data here. So weeks one through 52 of of the year. And you can see there was a bit of a dip very early on in, uh, in the pandemic and ju- in firm formation, but then uh, quickly increased. Uh, and by the middle of the year, it was at levels uh, significantly higher than it typically is, and it stayed higher than average throughout the rest of the year. Now, you might worry that maybe these are sort of uh, firm formations out of distress. Someone loses their job, so they start a, a business out of their home and they are consultants or something, but it's not really a high quality uh, business formation, but actually there are some, oh, this is the cumulative of that, by the way. So by the end of the year, we're looking at nearly a million more businesses having being formed than, um, than is typical. Uh, but on this issue of whether these new businesses are high quality or not, you can actually uh, do something about that in this data. There are observables about the business at the time it's formed that predict whether it's going to be likely to be a business that employs people, and grows beyond um, just some initial initial activity level. And if you look at those high propensity business applications, you see the same pattern, an initial dip during the pandemic, but then an increase and it stays higher than average throughout the rest of the year. Uh, If you look at businesses that are likely to start or that actually have an employee at the start of the business, same pattern, they're higher than usual. And I'll just note, if you look at what happened during the Great Recession as a, as a comparison again, this isn't just some cyclical thing where everyone goes and forms businesses during downturns. That did not happen in 2009. Uh, it really does seem to be something different is going on uh, with this, with the COVID crisis. Now, whether these businesses will in the end turn into a... Uh, uh, at a reasonable rate, large and 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 active employers remains to be seen, but at least I, I find this early look reasonably uh, encouraging. I'll just finish by noting there's a, you know, a, a, a policy issue here, which is this churn process. If it's increasing productivity, you want it to happen. But on the other hand, when businesses uh, go bankrupt, you lose that intangible capital F- Filippo was talking about. So Trying to get quantitative holds on both of these things is really important. It's hard, uh, but it's important for um, for policy. Okay, so that's it. I will. Uh... Thank you very
0: much, uh, very much, uh, Chad. Uh, um, just uh, uh, I recall the uh, finally stayed minutes. Uh, I recall also to the uh, attendance uh, that uh, you can uh, write a question better in the question and answer rather than in the chat, if you may, and then all uh, you raise your hand. Uh, Or both. Okay, so please, uh, uh, Ines, uh, can you come up with your uh, introduction?
4: Hi, hello, everybody. Thanks for the invitation. Can you see the slide? Yes. Yeah so I'm going to present a perspective from uh, the French economy and new uh, micro simulations. Uh, and this will, uh, I think it goes in the same direction as what was just presented. Um, so uh, what is the early evidence about uh, creative destruction in the case of France uh, since the start of the COVID crisis? The, the, I wanted to, to start mentioning by mentioning three um, uh, contributions One was already published in the summer last year, um, and there were calculations showing that there was a higher than usual proportion of efficient firms, so firms with high productivity in the first quartile actually of of the distribution, that uh, could become insolvent due to the crisis. So this was an early warning that the the creative destruction process could go the other way around. The second, uh, the second contribution came in the autumn, uh, across course, Epolar and Martin uh, men, uh, showing that uh, since March, there was no evidence that firms uh, falling, falling into bankruptcy were more productive than usual. So it was a kind of uh, counter argument based on, the recent, uh, on early evidence. And then um, there's the third contribution at the end of the year by uh, Bach and others showing that uh, less productive firms suffered a larger a larger shock, but productive firms also suffered a relatively large shock. So, and then what I'm going to do today is uh, to show simulations on how public support has distorted or not distorted the distribution of productivity across firms. So uh, it's based on actual data, the firm level. So uh, we take, uh, so this is uh, research that is being being uh, carried out at, at the Treasury, um, it's not perfectly not yet published, and uh, I, I would be happy to to receive some comments. It's exhaustive data on in, and on income statements and balance sheets. So we take them uh, at the end of twenty eighteen. Um, we still don't have the twenty nineteen balance sheets. And what is done is during the whole twenty twenty uh, crisis to simulate firm level shocks. Shocks to activity based on VAT uh, statements and, uh, and on revenues. Shocks and also uh, we take into account the payroll. So with quarterly data on the workforce and on wages. And then uh, what we simulate is a firm level take up of the different public, sch- uh, public support schemes, short time work, uh, what we call the solidarity fund, which is mainly for SMEs and uh, payroll tax deferrals. So this is done uh, for uh, almost all firms. Uh, What we exclude is those firms that were insolvent prior to the crisis. Uh, So the insolvency insolvency rate starts from zero by definition in uh, February, Uh, so you, you see on the graph. And, and then what we uh, so we simulate uh, the bal- the evolution of the balance sheet of the at the firm level, uh, depending on the activity shocks, so at the firm level, again, uh, so based on VAT statements. And then we simulate the cost adjustment behavior at the firm level with uh, no adjustment for fixed costs like rents, but an imperfect adjustment for viable costs. And, uh, and then third, uh, we simulate uh, the government support and we have individual take up of uh, short time work, solidarity fund, tax deferrals and beliefs. So uh, what is done is to assume that when cash, when the cash of the firm is depleted, then the debt automatically increases. It can be a warranted loan or it can be any form of uh, credit and then the firm is deemed insolvent when its assets total asset is lower than total debts so we start here in uh, february and february and the, the so the, the black line is what would have happened without a crisis so there's a simulation without the shock because we know that every year many firms uh, fail uh, become insolvent so this is the baseline And then we have the crisis, this is the solid red line, uh, which is what would have been uh, the the rate of insolvent firms without any public support. And we see that, uh, so again, those that were insolvent prior to the crisis are are eliminated. So the rate jumps from 0% in February to uh, more than 10% at the end of the year. And uh, so, in contrast, the dotted line uh, represents the exposed, so the the simulation for when we take public support into account, and we see that the share of uh, insolvent firms is reduced by uh, so by half, so it's, it goes from zero to five percent. Uh, the shaded lines represent the lockdowns, and we see that during the lockdowns there is a jump uh when there is no uh, public support and it's smoother when there is public support which is something that is intuitive now the core of uh, my uh, presentation is this graph uh, which shows it compares the distribution of labor productivity when you take into account of course the sector effect Uh, so this is a filtered for for sector Uh, and so this is a distribution labor the distribution of labor productivity so uh, the distribution for all firms is given in black, and uh, for insolvent firms without crisis is in red. So, uh, uh, as it, it is intuitive, and it's in normal times, um, those firms that become insolvent are less productive on that, on average uh, than those than than the the whole the whole, uh, the, whole um, uh, uh, the whole group of, of firms. We see that the distribution, the red distribution, is on the left-hand side compared to the black distribution. Now, what is interesting is to see the blue. And the blue represents the, uh, the, the those firms that became that w- would not have been insolvent without the crisis, but became insolvent due to the crisis. And the solid line is um, is the with, with public support, and the dotted line is uh, without uh, uh, public uh, support. So the dotted line is we um, is with public support sorry and the, the solid line is uh, without uh, anyhow the two are very close to each other and we see that the blue the blue lines are in between the red and the black so this confirms that those firms becoming insolvent due to this crisis on average are more productive than in normal times but Less productive, that still are less productive than the total population of firms. And above all, it shows that the various public supports are neutral with respect to productivity. So the those supports have not favored less productive or more productive firms. It's just neutral. It doesn't change the distribution of insolvent firms with respect to productivity. I think this is the most important uh, uh, result that we get. So, it's not true to say that uh, public support, uh, generous public support, has um, preserved uh, low productivity firms and gone uh, against uh, the process of uh, creative destruction. It may be the case going forward, but uh, for the year 2020, at least in France, it's not the case. Then there are a number of of results uh, at, uh, depending on the sectors or depending on the size of the firms. So just to show you, for instance, accommodation and food, which you have on the left-hand side, uh, so in normal times uh, with no crisis, you would have the the black bar, which uh, shows something like a 3% uh, insolvency rate, and you have a huge uh, jump with the crisis, without public support, over 25% of firms would have gone insolvent. And when you add up all the public support, which is the the light uh, pink, uh, you uh, come back to something like 10%, which is already very large, but uh, three times less than without public support. In terms of size, uh, we all know that uh, larger firms uh, are less uh, at risk of insolvency. So the the whole distribution is uh, lower for large firms and for, for very small firms, uh, but we see that the increase of uh, insolvency is uh, general. So it's 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 uh, the case for all firms, small firms, and for uh, larger firms, and it's also the case for uh, young firms and for older firms. So this is something that is quite. Uh, important to have in mind when we uh, when we um, uh, analyze this crisis is uh, that it's across the board uh, in terms of productivity in terms of size in terms of geography in terms of um, also of age of the firms so maybe i will stop here thank you
0: Thank you very much, uh, Agnes. Uh, uh, Excellent. We actually have uh, lots of questions on your presentation, but we have to wait a bit. Uh, So, Stephen, you have the floor, please. Go ahead. You are not, uh, cannot hear you.
2: Okay, um, I've never done this before. No, <laughs> I think I remember to turn on my sound. Can you hear me now? Yeah, 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 yeah. we can. Okay, great. So um, as, as has already been made clear from the, 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 set, the presentation so far, COVID affects productivity in many ways. And what I'm gonna t- uh, do here is just uh, focus on a few channels uh, for which I have some interesting evidence to present. Um, and most of my focus will be on working from home Um, And I will attempt to quantify um, two aspects of uh, the productivity effects associated with working from home. I will also show you some evidence that um, suggests that the efficiency of working from home will get better uh, in the years to come. So let me get right into it. Um, The thing I want you to keep in mind when you think about the role of working from home and its potential productivity impacts. It was obviously a massive um, uh, experiment across much of the economy and across much of the society. That's the scale point, but it was also a coordinated experiment. Um, So there's two aspects of here. Firms undertook experiments that they would not have voluntarily taken. That's the point from this quotation here from the CEO of Morgan Stanley. But they also undertook experiments that they could not have taken, but for COVID And that's because um, no organization can compel its suppliers and its customers to uh, engage in remote commerce uh, and other activities at the same time, just because they want to conduct an experiment at the individual or organizational level. But but that's in fact what's happened. So individuals, organizations have have experimented um, with working from home but they've done so in an environment when many of their customers and suppliers were also conducting that experiment. So the fact that the scale was coordinated at such large scale and compulsory means there's the potential for a lot of new information to be gleaned about the efficiency of working from home. Um, and I'll try to quantify that effect. So first, just a bit about the, the size of the, of the shift to working from home. Um, so this, is, this pulls together three different types of information. First, from um, kind of a, a standard government source, um, American Time Use Survey, this is all data for the US, about 5% of full work days were worked from home before COVID struck, okay, that's the pre-COVID data point there. Um, since May, Nick Bloom, Jose Maria Barrero and I have been conducting um, a repeated cross-sectional survey about once per month uh, of working arrangements and attitudes. Okay, and, and among other things, we've asked workers, you know, whether they're working from home, and that's all of the, 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 the dots you see here that, you know, rises above 60% in May uh, through January, so we just, um, or that's through December, we haven't, I haven't got the January data in here yet. Um, <clears throat> so basically, during the period from May to December, about half of working hours, uh, half of, of work time was done at home. But throughout these surveys, we've been asking workers what they, what their employers plan for them to do after the pandemic is over. That's the last data point. And that gives us a number of about 22% of full paid days done at home after COVID is over. So we basically, our data say there'll be about a quadrupling of uh, days worked at home. This is for full-time workers, by the way, after the pandemic's over as compared to the pre-pandemic situation. Now, with respect to the experiment, um, the majority of workers um, find, or about half uh, of the workers find um, that COVID is, that working from home has worked out better than they expected. Okay, that's a bit of a vague question, but but I'll turn that into a productivity number with another question. But I wanna emphasize something here that if you take this data at face value, what it says that the mean expectation of how well, co- how well working from home would, would turn out uh, was biased downwards before we conducted this massive experiment. Now, we also asked workers um, how efficient they are during the pandemic working from home relative to how efficient they were working on the business premises before the pandemic. That's what you see summarized here. About 40% of workers uh, claim to be more efficient working from home. Uh, than working um, um, on business premises. Now, if we take those data at face value and we just integrate over them and we assume everybody who is more productive uh, working from home will work from home uh, after the pandemic is over, you get this four percentage point boost to productivity. If you intersect those data with what workers say their employers plan for them to do after the pandemic's over, you get the 2.3% increase in productivity. So again, I'm taking these, um, these uh, reports from the workers at face value and I'm constructing the implied productivity boost, which comes from the knowledge gained according from the experimentation that we've done. Okay, so that's, that's the 2.3% number. Now, there's also an implied productivity gain associated with um, the reduction in commuting time, which is enormous. Um, and again, here's some back of the envelope calculations on um, the basically take the pre versus post pandemic um, commuting time savings. That's about 54 minutes um, per day multiplied by the shift towards working from home. We've, we've adjusted it downwards for the fact that people say they spend about 40% of their commute time doing work related activities. You put all that together and you get a 1.2% gain Uh, in effective labor productivity. This may not be one that shows up in our usual productivity statistics because the working hours number we use often doesn't include commute time but it is a true productivity gain. Now since I put this to slide together my co-author just last night executed this calculation on the micro data uh, and there you get a bigger effect. You get about a two percentage point productivity gain. The reason it's bigger in the microdata and it's not calculated, captured by my back of the envelope calculation here um, is because the um, uh, commuting, the shift of working from home is greater among more productive workers and they also tend to have longer commutes. Last piece of evidence I want to put on the table um, is about um, some evidence of a shift in the direction of technical change. So this is from a different paper and, and what we've done here is we've gone to the uh, patent applications uh, that are published weekly um, by the U.S. Patent and Trade, Trademark Office and we run a little program that essentially identifies those patents that advance technologies working from home and remote interactivity technologies um, and that, that share is more than doubled uh, since January. Um, through September, that's the last data point that we have here, and you can see that there's still a clear upward trajectory. So what all of this suggests is that the the practice of remote interactivity is going to become more efficient going forward. Um, Last last point I want to make is kind of more on this reallocation theme of which the the working from home is just a piece. Here's just a very different cut at the evidence than um, we saw earlier. And um, this is from yet another paper. And what it shows here is that in the wake of the news about the pandemic and the policy response to the pandemic, there was simply extraordinary um, dispersion across firms and their stock price reactions to that news. And so the two points that I've labeled here, for example, um, March 16th and March 18th, the interquartile range of abnormal firm level stock returns on those dates was 15, t- 15 standard deviations greater than the average IQR in say 2019 to take a reference point. Um, and, and finally, I, I don't have time to dig into that. There's many elements under that dispersion, but one element that is there um, is the shift of working from home. So this is yet another paper and what you, what you basically see here the data are divided into five groups. The red line are so-called essential businesses. The others are quartiles of businesses based on the share of their workers who can work from home. And what you see is in the wake of the pandemic, there was this enormous spread whereby firms and industries where working from home was practical, um, had huge gains in their stock, stock prices relative to those that were not. Um, I'm going to stop here. I have got more to say that's kind of in the same theme maybe we'll come back to it later.
0: Thank Excellent. You. Thank you very much Stephen. Excellent evidence. So Carolina, it's your turn please. Go ahead. Let me let me get out. You have of, to unshare. Yes. Yes, i There we so go.
5: I, think I, I went and brute force and uh, <laughs>
0: So I remind the audience to raise hands and send uh, questions. We got already many, but, uh, you know, so that I can structure a bit the debate afterwards. Thanks.
5: So thank you very much for the opportunity to be in this uh, panel. It's a real pleasure. I wanted to, like, I structure my remarks based on uh, the original column in the box EU. And I took a bit the the optimistic uh, approach, which was that the pandemic might become a source of uh, cleansing effects that eliminate the least efficient firms and encourages the adoption (laughs) of more efficient production technologies. So there are like two ways of of thinking about uh, uh, this uh, acceleration of productivity growth uh, after COVID. The first one would be within from changes or like higher technology, technology adoption and innovation. And here the key is whether we actually like have evidence that uh, that firms have increased their technology adoption. And uh, moving forward, like the challenge is whether this uh, new technology adoption and innovation will have uh, long lasting effects. In terms of reallocation effects, uh, the key is is again, like uh, it's been mentioned like several times today, uh, the exit of low productivity firms. Although I found like very interesting this, this increase uh, in, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the entry in, in, in Chad's uh, presentation. In here, like the key will be like uh, this, what we've called, like zombie firms. So businesses that continue to have access to borrowing despite their operating profits being insufficient to service outstanding debt. So let me like show you some um, evidence on the first point uh, related to technology adoption. So, Bloom, Valero and Van Rine, and they have uh, survey data from the UK, and they show that more than 60% of firms have adopted uh, new te- digital technologies or new management practices, 40% invested in new digital capabilities. What I have here in this graph is information from uh, the Spanish National Statistical Office. They run uh, like a survey, so two repeated cross-sections, and, um, one during the state of alarm and uh, with forecast uh, for the second sem- semester in 2020, and the other one in the second semester of 2020 with forecast for the first semester in 2021. So what you find in here is that in terms of uh, remote work, uh, like Spanish firms, or at least in this sample, they, they seem to, like most of them, like, uh, like, like it's close to the UK numbers, right? So we are like close to the 50%. In other, like, measures or new formulas that that they've been, like, introducing to try to keep their activity levels pre-crisis, we see that the the reaction has been a bit less, uh, like, optimistic. Uh, Digitalization also went up. And uh, what's interesting is that there is still, like, 40%, so close to 40% of companies that are not implementing any change. If we dig a bit deeper into which, so by firm size, right? So we know, again, that this, there is this correlation between size and productivity. Uh, which firms are, have actually like taken up on these, on these uh, technologies or, or which firms are not doing anything? Uh, the remote work, I mean, we see that in here is clear. Huh? So the higher the size, so the, the, the darker the blue, the larger the company. And we see that close to 80% of the large firms had moved to remote work. Uh, and there is also like a major role played by large firms in digitalization and process innovation I think what is also interesting and is key and probably we would have guessed is that this like percent the percentage of like firms that have not implemented any measure is driven by these very small firms so these are firms with less than 10 employees uh, I think it's important to, to know a bit about the Spanish economy and that 90 percent of like uh, those uh, like companies, okay, with more than one employee are actually firms with less than 10 employees. And they represent around like 30% of employment. So what these companies are, are, are doing are gonna have like important implications for the, for the aggregate economy. At uh, these uh, firms that do not implement any new measures, they are spread uh, across like uh, various like sectors so the industrial sector, the construction sector, retail. So it's not specific to one particular sector. And we might think that maybe, I mean, there are firms that, uh, I mean, they take out uh, or or the the adoption rate maybe is is low. But these firms are thinking about adopting like uh, new technologies in 2021. Uh, This is a bit the bright side. So when asked about this question or measures to adopt in 2021, like larger firms, um, we see higher adoption rates than what I showed you at the beginning in terms of like uh, investing in like workers skill upgrading, new products, new investment technology and digitalization and process innovation. Uh, however, like the smaller firms, they, they still remain like very, like very low in, in all the percentages. And they also are, they report that they are more likely to, to close. So given that, uh, so if you if you look at the survey, like both like large and small firms, when asked about the main factors that have impacted uh, their activity, they report the macroeconomic environment and a drop in internal product demand. So both type of firms are facing the same, uh, the same shock, if you want. Mm-hmm. However, we find like, the, the, the item in which we find mm-hmm. a greater like, a dispersion or gap or difference between large and small firms is in financial factors. So large fir- like smaller firms okay, are more likely to report like, uh, like increasing delinquency rates and liquidity problems as a major factor impacting their activity. Just uh, before I, 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 I move on a bit with this, uh, with this idea on, on the importance of the financial factors, let me just show you what is the outlook or the economic, the, the economic outlook uh, for Spain. So this is data on credit card expenditure from uh, BBVA which is one of the major um, banks in Spain and you can see that there was a massive drop in uh, consumption like uh, during the lockdown and what we see like we are right right now we're over here in the third wave is that there's been also like an important like drop in uh, in demand. Mm-hmm. Why is this important? Well, it's important because if, if we now like, have to make like a, like a bit of an outlook okay, of what's coming up next, like the low demand environment, plus low or non-existent like, changes to this business model, plus high levels of, of debt rises like uh, insolvency concerns. Uh, the early official response like, has been like, uh, like very like, successful in avoiding this large number of bankruptcies. However, the key issue now, like across especially like all the European countries, is how I'm going to stop official stimulus packages. And the key is going to be distinguishing between viable firms, those that don't have liquidity, and inviable firms. This has important implications also for the banking sector, because otherwise they would have to absorb the losses of these inviable firms or this, this bankruptcy. So we can talk a bit more later, but there is like a bit of a nuance also like, a, like a argument in here where uh, the, the, the the contraction, if the banking sector is affected, the contraction of credit to the total economy, okay, is gonna affect also like firms that wouldn't have had any problem in the absence of, of COVID. And we can talk a bit later, okay, on the different like solutions that have been proposed uh, because I think identifying the key, uh, way in how to deal with like uh, bankruptcies or like grants or, or like this uh, new equity, like participatory, like type of loan. Uh, especially in the case of the Spanish economy is going to be key moving forward. Just to finish on a brighter note, since uh, probably it's been a bit, uh, I think that the, 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 the long term like uh, consequences of this, this this relationship between productivity and, and COVID uh in the long run, it's going to depend on what happens to, to innovation. And we can think that there is, I mean, like in a scenario of low demand plus financial constraints, maybe there is less R&D spending. However, there is room for like a, like a more positive view because there is evidence like Steve just showed us on huh, increasing patents in certain sectors. So healthcare or green energy, working from home. Or we can think about like Chad's work on the the productivity J-curve, where we have like new technologies are first adopted. So we see like a lot of like adoption in in new technologies. And then firms will have to shift like some of the resources towards like investment in intangibles. Mm
6: -hmm. And there is
5: also recent Mm -hmm. evidence uh, on uh, like large amounts of uh, innovation after the Great Depression, for example. So what happens to, to innovation in the long run is probably something that, that we still have to, to wait a bit, but this looks good. And for countries like Spain, I think uh, on top of innovation, what is going to be key is uh, like something that we've been like, thinking about like for long now is on, on technology diffusion. And probably we have like, less evidence on this aspect of technology diffusion, uh, but it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be key moving forward uh, for, uh, for aggregate productivity. So thank you very much
0: excellent thank you very much thank you all the panelists um it's a very hard job now to wrap up and uh, and uh structure a bit but uh, we have lots of questions so maybe uh let's give the floor to a few that have been asking the floor i think i'm going to have carlo and javier miranda and duval please so you are already uh, in the panelists. carlo you can take the floor first if you want please go ahead
2: thank you filippo good good morning or afternoon everyone um no i had a a a question for chad i was wondering I, i was impressed by this new number of startups emerging new businesses emerging in 2020 in the us compared to the previous recession which is a an extraordinary sign of vitality of the U.S. economy, in a way, uh, as Chad said, it might be you know people that have been laid off and are just starting their new business, consultancy company, etc. I was just wondering whether there's any detail on that. Whether do you, we know that these companies are more in certain industries or others, or in certain parts of the country, like more in cities versus rural areas? Uh, so any detail on that would be much appreciated, so Chad. Thank you.
3: So. Um... It's quite possible there are other people.
0: I would say that we collect a few questions. Ah,
3: chat. Yeah, that's fine. Actually,
0: on that, let me add maybe to the question of business creation. We added that this business creation actually was going, was trending down. Correct. I was wondering if there is an issue on measurement of business creation because we know that there are a lot. You know, there are lots of firms being created, lots of firms that are going out of business. But then there are uh, three or four really getting out, but then being absorbed again. So there is an issue that the business creation is, in a way, you know, uh, countered by the fact that the concentration is increasing. I wonder if the panel can take a look into this issue, uh, also in measurement terms. Uh, so now I have, please, um, uh, uh, I was Duval, Romain uh, Duval, and Cavier Miranda, please, go ahead.
7: Romain. Thanks a lot, Yes, thanks a lot, Filippo. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. A great panel. Thanks so much to everyone. I just wanted to ask a question and make a few remarks regarding Agnes' presentation, because we've got forthcoming work uh, you know, at the fund uh, uh, with colleagues, including Shepnam, you know, Kalim about pretty much the same topic. And we find results for advanced economies that are fairly similar in the sense that the insolvent firms that become insolvent only due to covid actually are 25% more productive on average than the, those firms that would have become insolvent anyway, without COVID. So the, that really shows to me, and that's the question part, that really shows to me the, the value of targeting those types of firms, the right firms going forward in any equity injections, you know, they, this year in 2021, this debate about equity injections is really building up, particularly in Europe, uh, you know, you're seeing action being taken in France, Germany, Spain, and so the question would be, you know, and as you looked at the support so far and, and making the point that basically it's not distorted too much reallocation, which is great news. But then the question would be, you know, how to ensure that going forward as insolvency risks keep on building up and equity injections are being increasingly considered, how to make sure that they actually target the right firms and that they, they don't go to firms that would have been insolvent, you know, even without COVID. Because I see kind of political economic risk that, that this may happen. Thanks a lot, that was great. Thanks a lot. Good
0: to see you, Romain. Javier,
7: please, uh, can you uh, come up?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Thank you everybody, the amazing panel. Uh, I'll be very, very quick. Uh, So this uh, to Chad, um, on the cleansing effects the trans-productivity interactions uh, that you showed, uh, can you give us a little bit of context and how this compares to other, uh, to to regular um, recessions that we've experienced in the past? Um, I I assume, by the way, that here we're including, uh, actually, let me rephrase that. Have you uh, uh, looked at the compositions uh, looking at uh, entry and exit and continue effects? And then to Carolina, um, I very uh, much agree that um, that, uh, it's gonna be important to determine, which firms are, um, you know, we're, ma- are, we're marginal firms, firms already, right, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and how to target support moving forward. I'll say very quickly, uh, I did some work years ago around the, the Katrina um, uh, floodings in, in New Orleans, uh, and uh, we found, of course, that it, that was massive. It was a massive shock. Uh, of physical structures requiring a lot of investment and reinvestment to to come back up, and uh, of course, large firms um, had those resources and were able to to reinvest. Those that uh, smaller firms uh, didn't. So we found the the uh, financial constraints were were a, a big problem for highly productive young, young uh, small firms uh, uh, to come back. Um, but I'll stop there. Thank you very
0: much. So I would say that uh, let's start the first round of uh, replies by the panel. So maybe with the same order, Chad, please go
3: ahead. Sure, so on the um, data, uh, the business formation data, there might be other folks on the call who know even more about that data than I. Like I said, you can cut it by certain attributes that are known to be correlated with later growth of the firm and those are the high quality entries that I mentioned in the series I showed you, you see the same pattern. If you condition on firms that apply for a tax ID number with with an employee, they already have an employee, so this is not just someone running a consulting company uh, that is themselves. Um, same, same pattern. I couldn't tell you about geography. I'm not sure that that's available, um, but that might be interesting to dig into. Um, on the on the data, Javier's question about um, the 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 data I showed you from the UK um, and how that relates to cyclical patterns. I, you know, th- there's a long literature on whether recessions are productivity enhancing or productivity detracting. I think I'm not sure that it ever came to a conclusion. Um, Matthias Kerrig has one of the most pieces of careful data work on that that's just for manufacturing he finds it that on average recessions tend to sully uh, productivity so if if that's true and if the UK data is representative then this suggests this is going the other way but you know those are kind of sector specific narrow, narrow bits of evidence so I don't know if that's a generality or not but the, obviously that's an important question.
0: Okay, so um, uh, please, Agnès, you have a few questions uh, directed to you.
4: Two questions. Uh, so, uh, just a word on on, on, child, on the evidence pro- provided uh, um, on um, business creations, because I think it's interesting. Because in France, we have the same puzzle with a quite uh, dynamic, quite dynamic numbers of uh, firm creations. Uh, And it's not just uh, very small businesses. It's also uh, normal firms, I would say. And uh, it's quite uh, striking to see this happening in a country which is so different from uh, Anglo-Saxon. So I I think something needs to be uh, sorted out there. About uh, the question by Romain. Thanks for the question, this is key, of course. (laughs) Uh, Everybody's asking uh, uh, the same question. So, here the strategy is to um, start uh, uh, distributing quasi equity. So, this will be is going to be announced in a, in a few weeks, I think, and started uh, soon, very soon. So, it will be in the form of participation loans distributed by the banking sector. And actually, uh, in a country like France, which relies very much on intermediated finance. It makes sense to go through the banking sector. Uh, normally, these are the banks, uh, the, the banking network, uh, is supposed to to know the SMEs and to be the, to do the sorting. There will be an additional. Uh, so, the banks will have to keep uh, skin in the game, uh, something like ten percent of the risk in their balance sheet, and they will. And the rest will be transferred to an investment fund, and there will be a partial guarantee. Uh, by the by the government and what is very important here also is to rely on the on the ratings uh so the the bank de france uh, uh, rates uh, the smes and uh, so you can use these ratings prior to the crisis in order uh, to somehow uh, select the firms that you want to um, invest in and what also is key is not to have the government uh, becoming a shareholder of millions of firms (laughs) So this uh, should be avoided, uh, and we try to avoid that. Whether it will do the trick, we'll see. Uh, Surely not for very small firms. For very small firms, it doesn't make sense to open up uh, the the, the equity to to new investors. Hence, you have to rely on some forms of uh, of, uh, tax cuts or whatever transfer, and again, the the selection of the firms, we need to rely on some uh, um, incentivization scheme that we still don't have. So um, if you have uh, ideas, we would be very happy to to listen to that. Uh, And then there was another question, but I I didn't catch it. Filippo? Uh,
0: Was there any question?
4: Okay, we can okay. wait for the yeah, second yeah, one.
0: Yeah, Rebecca. yeah. yeah. Uh, so, why don't we turn now to uh, Steve? Uh, you got also some uh, uh, written question that I think you may want to uh, reply uh, uh, sort of orally as well. So, in particular, the, the issue was raised by Aurelia Proscuda and also by myself, in the sense that you have been showing the effectiveness of uh, of the uh, uh, distance working from the employees' point of view, but we are not sure that this is really productive. Correct? What can we say about uh, you know what we know about uh, how productive is the working uh, remote working environment?
2: Uh, Steve, please. Sure. Um, so we have less we have less evidence from the employers directly, at least less evidence that I know about. But I but I um, am involved in another survey. Survey Business Uncertainty. It's actually the, uh, the uh, father of the decision maker panel that, that Chad talked about. And we have um, back in May and then again in January, asked employers, um, what do they anticipate doing with their workforces in terms of working from home um, after the pandemic's over compared to the pre-pandemic situation? And when we ask workers this question, remember we got a quadrupling of time spent um uh, working from home when we ask employers that we get a tripling okay so not as big but still very large and i don't have any direct evidence from that survey and what employers think about the relative productivity of working from home compared to the business premises but just judging by their um, plans to greatly increase working from home after the pandemic i infer that many employers obviously not all uh, many employers um, do see some productivity gains that they've that they've learned about as a consequence of the ex, of the experiment that we've conducted. Now, let me say that just to, to allay any um, misimpressions, neither from employers nor from workers do we see a large mass that plans to move to a five day per week approach um, for workers. Not very many workers want that, and not very many employers want that what what the what things center on is really the option to work from home uh, one two or three days a week. most workers view that as a as a hugely valuable perk and many employers see that as productivity enhancing so that that's kind of what what I know there's also a lot of imp, kind of more impressionistic evidence from the employer side that at least as I understand it says many employers, not all have been positively surprised by uh, by the work-from-home experiment. I wanted to make one other comment. It's about the, um, the surprising uh, resilience and robustness of job create, uh, business formation. And it has to do with something that Javier Miranda mentioned. So John Haldaway and I have a paper that studies um, new business formation and the growth of young businesses uh, you know, over the past few decades with a particular focus on the, on the Great Recession and the years after that. And what we, what we discovered during that period is that housing wealth had an enormous impact on the formation of new businesses and the growth of young businesses. Um, now what happened in, everybody knows what happened in the Great Recession, housing prices collapsed in the United States and in many other countries around the world. Um, in the wake of, pa- of the pandemic, at least in the United States, I don't really know the situation in other countries, the housing market's been surprisingly robust. And uh, if anything, maybe housing values have gone up a bit. So that suggests that the the very different character of the role played by the housing market um, in the pandemic as compared to the great recession certainly, but even compared to other recessions to a lesser extent has provided the wealth and financial resources that allows for more business formation than we would have had otherwise.
0: Thank you, uh, Steve. Thank you very much for that. So, uh, Carolina, do you want to add uh, respond uh, to something? Please, go ahead.
5: Thank you. So, like, just on this number of, uh, in the case of Spain, I was looking for entry and exit, and they still not have numbers. So I'm a bit with Filippo. The only thing that they report is the number of active firms, and that goes up. But it's not clear like how many of those like, uh, businesses were not able to file okay, for, for like, exit. Or... So I think we still have to wait, a... at least in, in, uh, in Spanish data, we have to wait a bit to see this entry and exit uh, uh, rates. And regarding uh, like, uh, what to do with, uh, with uh, this um, like solvency issue, which uh, is very, so what Spain is proposing is very much in, in, in line with Agnes was uh, mentioning. So three possible like solutions like going forward, either um, equity participation loans, but then that doesn't work for the very small firms. Like they are talking about like a cap on like 25 million per company. That's huge. It means that the, the government will have to nationalize like all the companies in Spain. So that's that's not viable. Okay for for this for the for the very small firms. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other possibility for small firms is is grants so, so transfers direct transfers. this is very costly on the part of the, of the government and here so thanks uh, Javier like uh, the key is, is identifying those firms that are actually like viable and worthy of, of like uh, rescuing in a way. So again there is a partnership between uh, so I think Bank of Spain is, is talking also to the banking industry Association and using like, like the leverage on the expertise of the banking sector. I mean, they know how to do these things. I mean, they, they have the, the, the hard data, but also the qualitative data on, on companies. And the final one that has received a lot of attention also here in Spain is a reform of the bankruptcy laws. So in, that, in, in, in here, like, uh, well, it's very inefficient, it's very slow. And uh, there are two major creditors for small companies. We have the banking sector, the private banks, but also the public administration. And uh, the way the bankruptcy law is, is, is functions in Spain right now is like all the credits with uh, with uh, so all the debt with the public administration that doesn't go under the the the, the laws, okay, the bankruptcy laws. So the call is for uh, for like probably like haircuts on like taxes or social security payments that companies like small companies have to make to the to the private uh, to the private. Community. Administration.
0: Well, thank you very much, carolina Actually, what you are doing right now—you are attaching a team that was, uh, you know, lagging behind, but is of course very important. We have been thinking about the zombie firms for long, and of course uh, whether you know we are going to have a major uh, sort of uh, coming up of bankruptcies and so on. So I think that on that. Uh, uh, Stefan Müller can tell us about the experience uh, of Germany on that uh, IWH has a special survey on that uh, please uh, Stefan take the floor
8: Thank you Filippo so um, yeah I, I can provide some some uh, new figures on bankruptcy in Germany and also on the composition of bankrupt firms in Germany and I probably should say that I'm uh, tracing bankruptcies in Germany closely for many years now and uh, even more uh, closely during the pandemic. So as Filippo said, there is a monthly update on the most recent bankruptcy numbers. Uh, and I can also link this with Amadeo's data to see a bit more on, uh, about the composition of these firms. So what we see in Germany is, uh, as in many countries, actually a decline in bankruptcies. Uh, during the pandemic, so a decline in the crisis, which highlights two things that probably we should bear in mind when looking at the figures. And the first one is uncertainty, that's clear. But the second one is state intervention. Uh, We have uh, massive government programs in Germany that help firms, so short-term work schemes where the government pays um, wages. And the the second is, and that's actually a tool uh, by the government to... um, strategically uh, react to the crisis is to actually um, allow firms to not file for bankruptcy, although they are bankrupt, right? So um, this this uh, filing or this obligation for filing um, has been, uh, well, relieved for several months uh, in order to avoid the bankruptcy wave. So that's the first thing we, we should take into account when in interpreting these numbers. And I guess there are similar measures, maybe also in other countries. And the second finding is um, that, as in the last crisis, uh, 2008, 2009, we see more larger firms uh, during the crisis to file for bankruptcy. So, a relatively larger share of large firms, um, which are, of course, on average, also more productive. So, this uh, um, partly solves probably the, the puzzle that Romain actually uh, alluded to. And the reason for larger firms uh, going more likely into bankruptcy in the crisis is that say outside the crisis, these firms just shrink, right? They, they don't fight for bankruptcy, they just shrink and get restructured. But during the crisis, they have less time to do so, right? They just then crash. And that's actually one explanation for seeing more productive and larger firm going bankrupt uh, in the last crisis and also in this crisis. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Uh, anybody in the panel wants to react on that before we get other questions? <clears throat> Maybe some experience in the U.S. on this story, on the lagging effect of bankruptcies. Do you have the same phenomenon?
3: I actually don't know the data on bankruptcies per se, but it's certainly true that we also had policies to prop up firms. I mean, the Paycheck Protection Program was basically a subsidy to firms if they didn't Fire employees, so there was the same sort of, you know, notion that they were the government was going to try to reduce, um, you know, at least temporary insolvencies and maybe. But that, you know, that gets to the the um, policy question of: Are you just propping up firms that should have exited in a in an efficient sense? Um, it wasn't as large as in Europe because I think more money was put into unemployment insurance and direct payments to workers but it wasn't it wasn't minuscule either that was going on in the in the states okay
4: if, if I may, may add something
0: go ahead please
4: yeah ahead. I think it's, it's a very interesting point uh, made by Stefan about uh, larger crisis larger firms go However, it's difficult to, to catch because for larger firms, you can have mergers and acquisitions. It's not necessarily bankruptcy. Um, well, classified as bankruptcy is not discontinued. And also, so in our case, we are more worried about um, the medium size uh, enterprises, uh, which in our view are because the very small ones have been quite well uh, protected during this so far very large they, um, they can get uh, funding from the market they can so they, they have other ways of, uh, of uh, continuing their activity and they also uh, are internationalized so to the extent for instance you, ha- you can have a, a big retailer with some activity in China or in, uh, in, in places where so they, they, uh, they, although it's a global crisis as you know uh, it's not to the same extent in all uh, places. So larger firms have more, and sometimes also they have, they are active in different sectors. So they diversify geographically and also uh, in the, uh, by producing in different sectors. Whereas medium-sized enterprises, this is really a worry because uh, they are, they don't have this advantage, but they don't have the advantage of smaller firms who have been quite while protected by uh, the lump sum transfers the, to the firms. So in our view, the, the, the danger is is, is, is more uh, for, for medium size uh, to uh, the smaller end of the large firms.
0: Okay, uh, so uh, thank you very much. Um, while we're waiting for other questions, I have uh, something that I mentioned before, which, uh, which was also something that uh, Stephen implicitly was uh, was mentioning so what data do we need what else we need maybe when, when we were in April 2020 we had we were justified okay the crisis was just started two months you know okay there are no data right but now it's one year plus and uh, we still uh, you know appear to go with surveys and uh um you know, we, we still have trouble to look at uh, the firm results, right? So um, what are you in terms of sequencing waiting for? I say, you know, I want to know in America and say maybe in France and in Spain. So individually, what would be the you know, the first thing that you say, okay, if I have this, then I can say something more uh, you know definite on that, right? Uh, go ahead, please, whoever wants to take the floor <laughs> to, to start.
2: Can I, can I jump in there? Um, sure, sure, go ahead. I've actually got a, another slide I'll show. Um, so, um, you know, the decision maker panel that Chad talked about, <clears throat> the survey of business uncertainty that I mentioned briefly, um, what's innovative about those surveys, among other things, is that they are routinely asking forward-looking questions in which um, businesses are asked to Project their own future outcomes. And I think that kind of data, um, which is still pretty scarce, um, is quite helpful um, in the wake of a, an abrupt major shift in the economy like the one occasioned by the COVID shock. So let me let me illustrate that point with this chart. <clears throat> so with this chart, these are monthly data in which we're looking at a measure of job reallocation across firms over a 24 month interval, okay? So it's much longer than the kind of monthly hires and separations data that Chad showed earlier. The 24 month interval is from each month of the survey, a 12 month look back and a 12 month look forward, okay? So that's the 24 month interval and you can see that in the wake of the pandemic, there was a big increase um, in the expect, this is a combination of realized over the past 12 months plus expected reallocation um, over the next 12 months. Uh, So this is, I think, the kind of data that we can use in the midst of a crisis or any other abrupt shift in the economy to try to get some sense um, of forward-looking outcomes. The, the idea behind this survey is each business knows more about its own prospects than anybody else. So instead of asking businesses or professional forecasters about the macroeconomy, we ask the business executives about their own business, and then we aggregate it up. So that's, that is a illustration of the kind of thing um, that, that can be useful and that I think we ought to be doing more of. And there is, there is more of this going on. The decision maker panel is the largest survey of this sort now, the one in the UK. Um, but the, the survey business uncertainty was the first um, that's kind of in this, in this space where we are asking businesses about their own, to project their own future outcomes, about their real activities. Um, so I, that's kind of a, not a full answer to your question, Filippo, but a partial answer. I did want to speak to another issue, but I don't want to. If you, if others want to speak, uh, to let's issue turn,
0: let's turn, let's let's finish that, and then you come back into on the new one. Uh, Chad, Agnes, or so Carolina. So, what are your uh, expectations <clears throat> about the data uh, that you know we really need? Yes.
5: My wish list, if I, since I'm, we're in this forum with a lot of people, <laughs> it would be like uh, having like uh, like. So going a bit outside the surveys, I mean the surveys are very informative, but uh, if the information is out there, right? So if we could link like balance sheet information on the company to those firms that actually like receive right these furlough programs, the ERTEs in Spain, or the or the ECOS, the long guarantee programs, and 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 evaluate, I mean like it's, it's not so like uh, like rocket science, right? I mean we know how to do these things, so so see like whether. Those, those, that, that, those programs have actually like been, been, been effective along like different dimensions, like retaining workers and uh, also like in terms of productivity and, and, and economic activity. So for me, that would be my, my, my wish list so that we can have like a broader sense of what's going on in the total economy, like moving a bit outside the, the survey data.
0: Chad, if you want to jump in.
3: I'll just, you know, people have pointed out, wow, no one wanted a pandemic, but it's good we had a pandemic after Zoom and all these communications technologies were available. Yeah. I, I, I didn't want a pandemic, but it's good we had it now when we had things like the decision maker survey and this new firm formation, uh, high frequency data. 10 years ago, this stuff didn't exist. We were really flying blind, I think, mm-hmm. during the great recession about what was going on at a firm level. We don't know everything now, but we know a lot more. I think in ratio log terms an infinite amount more than we did uh a decade ago. So I am I'm glad for that. And the more we can do of this is the better.
0: Okay. Okay. So um, uh, I have a question from Fabia San. Uh, please go ahead. Uh, was, sorry, Agnes, you wanted to say, go ahead, Agnes, first, and then I Favia. also
4: have a, a wish, wish, wish
0: list. Please go ahead. You are European, <laughs> so maybe uh, European, so maybe we can help. Let's see. To, to give some Thank you. To
4: so uh, if you could provide me with a number of information. So first, of course, uh, we the first thing we would like, but this is coming, uh, but it's long, uh, to, to get the balance sheet in, at the end of 2019 this will come but yeah. we have to wait and then and uh, to have uh, a little more detail about the structure of the liability side of the balance sheets uh to have the maturity of the debt and uh, the counterpart counterparty of the debt so I know the Banque de France who is there has the information but you also always have this problem of matching that was mentioned also by uh, Caroline. carolina yeah. And also, I think something which would be maybe for the next crisis, uh, because I don't think we have uh, the capacity to, to bring this data, is about the jobs of the firms. We, we know very little about uh, quite what kind of jobs at the firm level. We have a lot of information at the sector level, at the geographic level, but not at the firm level. So who are these uh, people that are going to be laid off and what kind of uh, skills they have and we know uh, from the past we we start to have uh, matrices of mobility across uh, jobs based on the proximity of the tasks uh, and so th- this is a research that we uh, need to develop before the next crisis i think for this crisis i'm afraid it's going, it's going to be a bit short well if it's not short, it's because the, the crisis will be very long. So I, I, I hope it will be rather the former. Thank you. OK, thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Fadi, please take the floor. You have. Uh...
6: Yes, just very quickly. Hi, Philippe. Hello. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to thank you all for this presentation. It was all very insightful. I, I have a, a, a quick comment on, on, on Stephen's point on working from home when he was pushing the idea that, you know, the fact that uh, businesses want to create, you know, more working from home opportunities, this obviously can reflect also, you know, saving on costs from their side, especially on rents. So I guess what this means is that the net, uh, you know, gains from cost reduction and whatever the productivity changes is is going to be positive. And and we know from, you know, Nick Bloom works on, on management practices that when managers were asked to assess themselves, they did very poorly. They overrated themselves on their management practices. So most likely workers are also, you know, likely to, 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 to overrate their productivity gains from working on home. So I, I wonder like, you know, if in the end, like the main channel from working from home would just be sorting in the sense that the workers that will feel more productive to work from home now will be able to do so Whereas the ones that prefer to go in the offices you know we'll be able to continue to go in this office. So I, I would like you know, perhaps I, I wonder, you know, whether it's worth to stress more the sorting channel rather than, than you know the self-reporting measures. Thank you.
0: So the floor to you, Steve, for the reply and for the for the question you want to raise. Go ahead. Sure.
2: Um, a <clears throat> couple of things. First, I don't the bias that you described that we we all overestimate our own. Um, performance, I don't think is in play here. We're not asking worker, because if, if you overestimate your own performance at home and at work by an equal amount, it can, cancels out the way we posed the question. So I don't really think that's the issue. Um, it's still possible that workers are failing to see the full picture that employers see um, in assessing productivity. That's entirely possible. But as I, is that, that's why I mentioned the data that employers also plan to greatly increase the incidence of working from home after the pandemic is over, at least that's what they tell us. Okay, whether they actually do that, we'll see, but that's what they tell us. Um, so, I, so I do think there are real gains there. Um, and then if you just reason it, think about it from a theoretical perspective. Think about the simplest two arm bandit problem. You're pulling the slot machine, it has a known payoff distribution. If you pay some big fixed cost, you can try this other slot machine. You don't know what the payoff distribution is for that other slot machine. You don't learn it because the fixed cost of trying it is too high. Then COVID hits, you're forced to try it. You pull this other slot machine. For some workers, for some organizations, they learn news that makes them say, this other slot machine is actually better than the one I was using before. So theory alone suggests that even if you had unbiased expectations about the other technology, the second slot machine, you'd expect to see some shift um, after this massive experiment. And as, and as I tried to stress in my presentation, our evidence says that on average, the expectation of how productive you would be in this other technology was too was biased downwards. So I think there's there's theoretical as well reasons, and and we go into more of the mechanisms in our work. So I'll describe I'll describe um, a couple. First, uh, there used to be a lot of stigma associated with working from home, often characterized as shirking from home. That stigma has basically completely disappeared. Um, as a consequence of the pandemic. Now, it may come back somewhat, but it's gone completely. Um, In addition, there are other mechanisms in play. People say that they will have lingering fears about infection risk, about being in crowded elevators, crowded public transport, um, even after the pandemic is over. So that, you know, this is the idea that if you live through an experience that scars your mental outlook that it affects you even after intellectually you know that the reason for the the fear is uh, the infection risk is no longer there Um, and then there are investments that have been made um at home and in the and in the office to support working from home Um, we quantify those in our work as well so we estimate that the the value of the time spent learning to work from home this is from the survey evidence again plus what was spent on equipment at home to make your your home office more productive is about 1.2% of annual GDP in the United States. If you look at the NIPA accounts, you can see there's a spike in uh, business spending on information technology software type things since COVID struck. So that says it's harder for us to quantify that precisely, but that says there was a lot of investment by businesses or suggest in supporting working from home. So I think we have lots of evidence, not just what workers say and what employers say, but we have direct evidence on the mechanisms that says this this shift will will stick. As to your selection point, I think that's right. I think there were, partly because of the way work was organized, partly because of the stigma associated with working from home, there were some people who were better suited either by temperament or by desire or by their life's their living arrangements to work from home, but were prevented from doing so uh, beforehand. And now we'll have the the opportunity to do that. And employers are more likely to afford that opportunity uh, to some of their workers to work from home, um, you know, one or two or three days a week. So I think there are lots of reasons to think that, uh, that this working from home phenomenon will both partly stick and will involve a productivity gain. Thank you. So thank
0: you very much. Uh, so we have uh, a couple of minutes that uh, I would like to dedicate, if you allow me, it's almost midnight here in Singapore. So just before, before going to bed, just why don't we, you spend 30 seconds of your time for a final statement, going a bit on the line of what I was saying is my third question. I mean, with respect to 10 months ago, are you, just loosely speaking, are you more optimistic about the productivity impacts or, or less so? We know that the data are still not there, all of them. We wish they were, but they're not there. But uh, you know, what is your perception and and hope on that? Just a, a few seconds each. Uh, Chad, please you start.
3: I'm largely encouraged and more optimistic than I was when you and I wrote that piece a year ago uh, or ten months ago, Filippo. Um, like you know, I showed that data. I think overall things are working in a direction we expect we have to be a little careful it's revenue productivity so you can't completely rule out market power and things like that but i think there's ancillary evidence that it's that it's productivity enhancing and the business formation data is good so i think that's i've been encouraged so far
0: okay so yes would you uh, i know that he, as a chief economist of france is out of the record right
4: <laughs> out of the record yes um so so far uh, so as an interim uh, conclusion i would uh, say that uh, the balance between upside risk and downside risk uh, are quite equal uh, and, and uh, i i w- this is not a financial crisis so we don't expect uh, potential growth to be reduced uh, in the long term. And when I see all your arguments, uh, whether they they have to do with uh, innovation, with uh, labor productivity reallocations, uh, I I would say that we have, um, we could have some uh, surprises on the upside, but also from the downside. And of the all, I would say that maybe uh, pre-crisis productivity growth and post-crisis productivity growth may not be so different. Uh,
0: Chad, uh, sorry, Steven, you want to attempt the
2: uh, 30 yeah, seconds. Um, 30 <laughs> seconds. So, um, you know, I'm optimistic about the potential productivity gains from this experience. I'm um, partly for reasons I talked about, but I'm also quite worried about um, whether those will be realized in practice because there's this enormous political pressure and and, and sometimes, and also their economic arguments, to preserve the old. There's always this tendency that we want to preserve the old, protect the medium-sized businesses, the small businesses, the, the big businesses, and preserving the old can easily lead to the crowding out of the new, um, and by the new, I mean the entry of, of new businesses and the reallocation of uh, uh, workers and capital and organizational energy towards um, more productive uses in light of the new Environment that we're in, so there's a real danger that we don't take advantage of the productivity opportunities that are are there. In my view.
0: So thank you, Carolina. Just last words.
5: <laughs> so, like coming from a country that is uh, undergoing the third wave, <laughs> uh, I guess my, my remark is gonna be on like how speed we are able. I mean, how quickly we are able to to come back to like normal economic activity again. And for me, what's going to be key is the ability of something that we were already thinking before the crisis, but like the ability of large firms to pull from medium firms and medium firms to pull from small firms. So I think, uh, the, the, so at least in the case of, uh, of, of Spain, like we need these small firms to grow and we want the good ones to grow. So, so I, I really hope that we take this as an opportunity to, to do so.
0: So let me thanks very much this fantastic panel for these also words and then also for this uh, um, moderate optimism which is always good uh, despite the difficulties. And uh, unfortunately, we, I, I cannot offer you a glass of wine in Paris tonight uh, at a good restaurant, but we hope that it is going to be soon the case. And uh, you know, uh, I'll thank you very much uh, wherever you are. Keep safe and healthy, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for participating in this great, great panel. Take care. Bye. bye bye. Thank, bye. You. Thank bye. you. Bye. everybody. Bye bye. Thank
5: you. Thanks a lot. Thank bye. you. Bye bye.